this is episode installment number two with the Gadfather, Gad Sad. Now, I remember the last time, and I think it was the first time. Well, the, Gad was on my channel. I was on his. I remember when he was on my channel. I was in quarantine because this was back in the time when science was prevailing. And if a kid came in contact, même en passant, with someone who tested positive for COVID, you had to take that kid and put that kid in quarantine for, I think it was 10 days or five to 10 days at the time. Science people. And uh, I was like, I'm not putting any kid in quarantine anywhere, ever, full stop. I don't care if the government says lock up your 10-year-old in a room solitary for five days. So I took the kid uh, and my wife and we went up to the cottage and we were fortunate enough to be able to escape the tyranny at my parents' cottage. And that's where I remember doing the... Uh, podcast with with gad said um constantin i can see your comments so I, I i have not shadow banned anybody um the dogs are gonna bother me okay that's the intro people want to let everyone trickle in share the link around because gad is gonna come on we're gonna go from a parasitic mind to happiness if such a thing can be found in this world and full disclosure i have not read gad sad's book not a question of 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 shade or laziness I can't read. I can't read until the audio comes out. I'm not going to be able. So I, I have a synopsis of sorts. All right, Gad, enough with the intro. I think we've done it enough here. Well, let, let me just make sure we are live on Rumble. Are we live on Rumble? We're live on Rumble. Good. And we're live on Locals. And hopefully the internet keeps up. I got a text. Okay. I'm in a hotel room with my kid. Uh, he's being very good and letting me stream extensive periods of time after spending all day in a car driving. Okay. We'll talk about it. Okay. Gad. I'm bringing you in. Everyone share the link. This is going to be awesome. Gad, sir, let me see. Do I want to do it like this? Yeah, this is good. Viva. Sir, how goes the battle? <laughs> the, the battle of living in Quebec, Canada. The battle of uh, being so good looking in a world of ugly people. What is it? What, what, let's say, let's say the battle of being so good looking while living in Quebec and Canada, while working at uh, your university, which back 20 years ago was was politically um difficult i i don't want to get you in trouble uh what is what is everything what are you up to these days well uh still a professor at concordia i can't believe it but it's 29 years i joined concordia university straight out of my phd in 1994 we're 2023 so i just completed so on june 1st i will be starting my 30th year i can't believe that's possible i had a few little visiting professorships at dartmouth at cornell at uc irvine but uh you know i'm still i'm still at concordia um uh, as you kindly mentioned in your intro i have a a book that's coming out this this is this one right here where no i'm no other side this side go. yeah I have this book coming out uh, in nearly two months from now on July 25th. So I've been busy, you know, I was wrapping that up, uh, going through the galley proofs, you know, clearing the the cover and so on. And, you know, just trying to live a good life, man. How you been? Uh, well, I've been, I mean, I'm, I've been living in exile. You know, I'm in Florida now. I've been here for, it's, we're finishing one year already and uh, yeah. one year on, on a three-year visa. And then we'll see where the world is, you know, at the end of the three years. But again, I think everybody knows who you are. Uh, they should. But for those who might be meeting you for the first time, the 30,000-foot overview, and then we're going to get into the thick of things. Sure. Uh, well, first, I should mention, thank you so much for having me on again. I, I loved so much our first... I mean, as you said, you've come on my show. I've come on yours. So thank you for having me again. Um, so I'm an evolutionary slash consumer psychologist. 
So what does that mean? Uh, my background is in psychology of decision making. I, I mean, my my academic background, my scientific background. So way back in my doctoral dissertation, I studied how much information do people look at before they stop acquiring additional information and commit to a choice. That's called a stopping decision because it's it's literally how do you stop and say. I'm ready to move to Florida. I'm ready to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm ready to marry this person, right? There's an information search process. And then at some point you say, I'm ready to choose. I don't need to look at more information. So so my my original training was in what's called behavioral decision theory, uh, psychology of decision-making. And very early in my academic career, I had become exposed to evolutionary psychology, which is the application of the theory of evolution to the most important organ in our body, which is our mind. So how how the, the human mind evolved to have the cognitive, behavioral, uh, emotional systems that it does. And so what I ended up doing for the past nearly three decades in my scientific career is apply evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. So that's the, the big story of my academic background. Do, do, you, do you want to interject or do you want me to go on? No, go on actually. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to take notes, but yeah, yeah, go on. So, so my scientific career is at the, is at the intersection of, you know, biology, psychology, and, you know, behavioral sciences. Uh, I'm housed in a business school precisely because I try to apply many of these uh, cogn cognate disciplines in studying economic decision-making, consumer decision-making, and so on. So that's why I'm housed in a business school. Now, in addition to that, I'm someone who has never felt, uh, uh, you know, the compunction to to just be a stay-in-your-lane professor. Many professors, they, they know their research area very well, so they keep pumping out many papers within this area, and they never stray out of their lanes. Whereas for me, both in my academic career, I've been very interdisciplinary. I like to navigate through many intellectual landscapes. Actually, something that I talk about in the happiness book, variety seeking is an important uh, pursuit in, in seeking happiness. But also I, I've been a stay, I mean, I've been a get out of your lane professor in that I like to speak to Viva Frey and I like to speak to guys who are not necessarily in academia. Anybody with whom I could have an interesting conversation I'm perfectly happy to hold such a conversation, which regrettably, most academics are certainly not rewarded for doing doing so. And in many cases, universities have traditionally condemned you, uh, have not looked upon that with, with glee because, you know, you should only be speaking to fellow highbrow people, to highfalutin people, people who are smart like you in the ivory towers, don't speak to the rubes and the plebs and the great unwashed. And that's never been my style. My, the game that I play is I create knowledge and I want to disseminate it to as many people as possible. So I write book for the masses. I appear on popular shows. I'm willing to do whatever I need to do to hopefully spread good ideas. So that's generally what's been keeping me busy for the past 30 years. 30 yeah. years. Now, so when you wrote Parasitic Mind in 2016, give or take, or was well, it well, no, I started writing it around 2017, but it came out uh, in 2020. And that was your, I, I don't want to ask a stupid question. Was that no, your, no, no. That's not no, your first, not first book. No, no, no. Okay. So the, fir the first book, I mean, let me see if I can pull them out here for you. Let's do a, a massive, the well, first book is this one. Yeah. So let's see this. They go from academic to right. political so of sorts. Hardcore academic book. This is a, a, a technical book that's 
that seeks to demonstrate how you could apply evolutionary thinking and studying consumer behavior. So that's number one. Then I did this book, which was an edited book. Also, an, oh, let me go this way. Evolutionary also, psychology in the business scientist. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. Man. So this place, <laughs> you're being sarcastic. No, I, I actually, I, I was trying to be sarcastic, but it actually does sound no, extremely interesting. No, it's actually really, it's, a, it's, I mean, if I can say it, it's, it's actually really fun because what you're basically doing in the, uh, in this book is, demonstrating how you could apply the evolutionary lens in many business disciplines. How do you apply evolutionary psychology in entrepreneurship and retailing and behavioral economics and in uh, behavioral finance in my field, consumer psychology and so on. So it's basically Darwinizing the business school. So that was the second book. Uh, the third one, this is the one where I, oh, no, let me go this way. Uh, the Consuming Instinct, What Juicy Burgers, Ferraris, Pornography, and Gift-Giving Reveal About Human Nature. This was written for the masses. The Parasitic Mind, which I had started, I mean, Parasitic Mind, is, which I'm going to come to in a second, is another one that, in a sense, I've been, I've been collecting the information for that book for 30 years because what the Parasitic Mind is about is the idea pathogens that have been proliferating on university campuses causing us to hold these insane ideas. So uh, this one was the first trade book, sorry, trade book that I wrote. By trade book, it means it's not written for academics, it's written for the mm -hmm. masses. This one, which uh, you know, I completed, it came out in 2020. Now this one though is about negative mindsets, right? How how bad ideas can parasitize your mind. And so the current one, which is this one, the final one, thank you for giving me the forum to plug all these. This one is about, okay, well, how do we adopt positive mindsets? How do well, we- Bring it back up. Bring it back right. up for a second, Gad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you want to know how dense I can be sometimes. It's okay. called- the sad truth about happiness. And I didn't even get the pun until I was listening to you on Dr. Drew, because when I look at your last name, I don't see the word sad as in sadness. I only see it as in the last name. I never even made the connection so <laughs> really? I, until I'm driving up here, listening to the podcast of, of, of you on Dr. Drew. I was like, Oh my goodness, the sad guide to happiness. Now I get, and I feel like an idiot. Um, okay. So, and, and now this book is, well, the parasitic mind for those who don't know, is uh, basically about how we are, you know, uh, not cannibalizing, but rather destroying society, destroying ourselves through, uh, I, you know, uh, grotesque ideas of tolerance, which leads to intolerance, um, relativism, which which leads to, uh, I don't know what, what well, the acceptance of cultural and religious uh, practices that are antithetical to human dignity. That would be one example. And, uh, and you took now, I mean, we, we need to contextualize all of this. One chapter in parasitic mind dealt with uh, a critique of Islam, which the, for the, for the university at which you, you are a professor. I mean, that's like, uh, I mean, that's like walking down a, a trans parade with uh, a, a, you know, a big banner that says, um, Boys, boys have penises, girls have vaginas. I mean, that's how that's how provocative it would be. Um, so people need to understand, contextualize, writing the parasitic mind while working at Concordia. Concordia has been politically active, or I would say like politically toxic for since I was in university, which is 20 plus years ago. You've been there for longer. Has it always been the way it is now? Um, politically, it, it has in the sense that it's always been very leftist, very 
very much of student student activism, quite a strong bent of anti-Semitism. Uh, you may remember that in 2002, Benjamin uh, Netanyahu was blocked from speaking. Very much. Now, at the time, I was a professor for two years at University of California, Irvine. I had taken a visiting professor, so a professorship, so I wasn't in at Concordia, but he was completely shut down. Uh, so, yes, there has been uh, a tradition at Concordia of having these kind of uh, ultra-woke activists b before the term woke existed, right? So, for example, you know, the communication studies department and all these, you know, Simone de Beauvoir Institute, radical feminism, postmodernism. So many of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the parasitic mind would certainly have found a, a happy home at Concordia. But, you know, this is certainly not uh, unique to Concordia, right? You can go to Brown University or Oberlin College or Wellesley College or Harvard University, and you will find maybe slightly more staunch parasitic ideas or slightly less, but it, it's not a unique phenomenon to Concordia where there are professors and intellectuals, regrettably, they are profoundly stupid ideas because as I always remind people, it takes intellectuals to come up with some of the dumbest bullshit. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, Good way of putting it. yeah, no, but it really is true. And I'm, I don't say it to, to be, uh, you know, facetious or to, uh, to be, uh, bombastic. It really is the case that it's academics that come up with some of the nonsense that we see. I mean, uh, George Orwell had sort of intimated a similar sentiment many, many years ago. Uh, and usually Viva, it happens in departments where the professors can pontificate the nonsense perfectly decoupled from reality, right? There is no mm -hmm. feedback loop that tests their ideas. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons why it's taken longer for these parasitic ideas to, let's say, uh, enter the engineering school or the business school, because those schools are wedded to reality, right? I mean, you can't build uh, an economic model of consumer choice using postmodernist mathematics. There is no such thing. You can't build a bridge using postmodernist physics. So they're not fully inoculated from this bullshit, but at least be, the, the nature of what we study in those schools makes it a bit more difficult for the nonsense to spread. So, uh, and people have to appreciate this. We didn't have the term woke, but I distinctly remember because I was in McGill in, in 98 to 2002. And I remember them blocking Benjamin Netanyahu because I think it was the second intifada. Something was going on in Israel. And they said, we're not having this purveyor of hate and destruction speak at the, at the, at Concordia. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, this is, this is antithetical to university life. And I was happy to be at McGill to judge Concordia. Um, so we always, we had this, it just seems like it's gotten jacked up with steroids in the last 10 years, but when have you, you've seen an evolution where it's just gotten more and more toxic oh, over, over the decades. It's just today I posted a satirical typical day at the <laughs> university. I think I might've sent it. Yeah, to you sent it. it like, do you want me to read some of it? Well, yeah, you... re read it and oh, hold on. Actually, before you read it, we're going to read it over at rumble. Cause we're going to go over to rumble now. Uh, and I'll, we'll do this entirely on Rumble, and I'll post this uh, to, to YouTube tomorrow. But So everyone, come over to Rumble. Um, and before we do that, actually, I'll just read these two Super Chats. One says, I can only watch and not comment on Rumble, so here's a token of my gratitude to, the, to you both. Before we switch over, Maureen, thank you very much. And Gad, what strategies should the right implement to battle the leftist takeover institutions? Okay, we're going to keep this question for the end. But everyone, head over to Rumble, because uh, we're going to end on YouTube in three, two, one. Yeah, right, Gad, I mean, where, first of all, before you read it, where yeah. did you post it? 
So I posted this uh, first on Twitter and then to, on all my other social media. You know, my inst- I take a screenshot, post it on Instagram, on, on my public Facebook page and so on. But the original place where I posted it was on Twitter. Uh, and so, and so, people you work with, your colleagues, uh, people who study, this is for the public to see. So, when you post something like this, and it's hilarious, um, the people you work with, the people that study at at your university, can see it. Uh, I had a question about this. Uh, should we also specify that you're tenured at the university, so you can be more provocative than someone who hasn't attained that level uh, because you're sort of you have stability. Well, I mean, yes, it is true that tenure, I mean, tenure precisely exists for people like me, right? I mean, there wouldn't be a single, I mean, first of all, there are very few professors, if any, that are remotely as outspoken as I am, if I may say so. But even the other ones who have taken any sort of steps in trying to fight against this nonsense, we would all have been eliminated were it not for tenure. But I should mention, and as I explained in The Parasitic Mind, Tenure does not protect you from the death threats that I receive. Mm-hmm. Tenure does not protect me from all of the professorships that I know I would have gotten elsewhere and that I didn't because there was a revolt for not, you know, not letting the dangerous guy who supports freedom of speech and the scientific method from coming, uh, you know, amongst us. Tenure does not protect me when I didn't get my chaired professorship renewed when it would have been a no-brainer for it to be renewed. And I've now not had it for four years. And there's a real cost to that because the chair comes with, I can't remember the exact metric, but something like $15,000 or $20,000 of yearly research funds plus 10 or 15,000 of increased income to your salary. So when you put it all together, a five-year chaired professorship is in the order of $150,000, $200,000, I'm never, ever, ever going to get that renewed. So yes, you can say that I'm protected by tenure, but believe me, I bear endless uh, other costs for being so outspoken. No, no, no question. It's, it, it's only to say that they can't um, terminate you or you know get you out quite as easily, but maybe sort of construct it so that it becomes so unbearable for you that you decide to leave or they don't do anything to protect you from an onslaught that they would have undoubtedly protected others from had they been you know differently politically aligned exactly right i mean for example i now have a higher teaching load than i had earlier when i so usually in a professor's career as you become you know more notable as you your research career progresses you're not that not that you don't want to be teaching but you don't want to be teaching, you know, huge undergraduate sections and so on, because your time would be better spent, you know, directing a research lab or supervising doctoral students. Well, in my case, my teaching load has increased 30 years into my career. So so they're certainly not doing anything to try to protect me or make me feel happier. They haven't, for example, covered any of my uh, accomplishments for I think the last time they covered anything of mine might have been, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And in terms of, for example, media attention, and I say this in my usual GAD style, I probably get more media attention on a given Tuesday than the rest of the faculty combined in a given year. But somehow the communications department at Concordia doesn't seem to ever see you know, where my stuff is, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, two years ago, in, one, in early 2022, and I say this not to brag because it's relevant to the story. Two years ago, uh, 
Prime Minister uh, Navindra Modi, the Prime Minister of India, he usually picks for a Republic Day, the Independence Day of India, he picks a few notable people from around the world. It could be an author, a professor, a, a cricketer, a soccer player, an actor, and he chooses them as whatever to, to kind of bestow an honor on them. And so I was chosen by the leader of a country of 1.2 billion people, the largest democracy in the world, as one of those notable people, okay? So I knew that Concordia would probably not promote that, but I wanted to troll them. So I wrote to Concordia, everybody, mm -hmm. you know, the everybody in, you know, that you can think of. I said, hey, uh, you know, Prime Minister Navindra Modi just nominated me. Here's the letter. So please feel free to, you know, to share. You would think they'd want to. This is a huge honor. And uh, after much discussion and internal, you know, conversations, they decided that they couldn't share it because it was a personal letter that he had sent to me and i and so they couldn't violate that you know the dictum of you know personal communiques i said mm -hmm. but it's not personal it's posted all over the internet it's i've i've actually gotten permission from the prime minister's office to post the letter on my social media so by definition it's not a private letter at this point and they said sorry we can't share it so they can't fire me but they could certainly not celebrate me so they don't go out of my way to, to screw me or at least not very directly, but you'd like to be appreciated, right? I mean, you'd like you'd like somebody to say, "Atta boy, you're great. We love what you're doing." They certainly don't do that. Uh, maybe this is a stupid question. Before I ask, uh, is the parasitic mind for sale at the Concordia University Library? <laughs> well, it, it, no. I'll tell you why. Because uh, the courses that I teach, I've never assigned that book so because i usually teach let's say evolutionary consumer psychology or psychology of decision making you know i'm very very disciplined viva and not uh you know overlapping some of my positions that i like if some position that i discuss in the parasitic mind is relevant to a course i'm teaching i will certainly discuss it but i don't so so i won't walk into class and start railing against justin trudeau because you know, I think he's, he's, you know, he's not a good politician because in that course on psychology of decision-making, it's not necessarily a relevant topic. So I'm, and, and I think because I have that professorial discipline, because I know how to delineate what I should or should not be talking about from a, you know, from a professorial obligation perspective, I've never really gotten into trouble. If anything, uh, you know, my students, have always been unbelievably like I've I've seldom had trouble from sort of like the blue haired folks in, in any of my courses. Uh, and I guess that was a stupid question because unless it's part of a curriculum for a course, it won't be available at the, at the exactly. university library. Okay. Exactly. Uh, now, so we were saying all that was a prelude to your most recent post, which was a day in the life. <laughs> oh, let's do it. You ready? I was, I was trying to find the screen grab to bring it up, but well, I, I got it right here for you. Okay. Do you want me to read it or do you yeah. want to read it? Oh, no, here. Do you see a thing that says uh, share screen on the bottom of your, oh. or it says present? Oh, uh, present. Yes, I, I see that. Okay, just make sure there's nothing embarrassing on your computer that you might not want to accidentally okay, share so, with the world. So, no, so uh, gay Turkish sauna, I should remove that, right? <laughs> there would be nothing wrong with that, Gad. Uh, but yeah, like, I, if, okay, I, I had a joke that I was going to follow that okay. up with. Hold on. Okay, so present, and then what do I do? Present. Well, then I think I see it in the backdrop, and then I can bring it up. Did I do, did I do it? 
No. So or slides? Do I do so I did do present, present or oh, share and it screen? Says share screen. Yeah, share screen. Don't worry, what does matter? Share screen? Yep. And then I think I should see it in the backdrop. Do you? Not yet. Or cut the link and share the link with me in the private chat. Oh, I had and it then, as a screen. screen oh, okay. So you know, just just read it. Then we'll we'll we'll. It's a screen grab, anyhow. It's the it's the day in the life, and it goes through the you know eight okay, o'clock. So here we part. go. You ready? Okay. okay so it. typical university schedule number one from eight to nine a.m. Dean of Diversity will address the faculty about the daily genocide taking place on campus. Number two, from nine to ten a.m. <laughs> communal self-flagellation whilst reaffirming noble land acknowledgements. Number three, from 10 to 11 a.m., mandatory hashtag MeToo seminar to explain the importance of iterative consent. Do you know what iterative, iterative consent is, by the way? Iterative. If you don't, it clearly shows that you could potentially be a rapist. Uh, iterative. Oh, well, then it means, I guess you have to consistently ask for permission throughout the course of something. Right. So for example, here it goes, right? So for example, when, when my wife and I engage in sexy time, this is how it usually goes. <laughs> uh, here's how it goes. You ready? Yep. I am about to play some very white music that might get you in the mood. Do you consent to that? And then she says, yes, I do. Then I will say, I am about to take off my shirt demonstrating my ridiculously svelte upper body. Do you consent to that? So you see, by my constantly engaging in iterative consent, I'm throughout the whole steps of sexy time, I am keeping the dialogue open to make sure that if she ever wishes to withdraw her consent, she can. By the way, you know, I said when she, I should fix that because I recently, you may or may not have known this, I recently came out as a gay man, because my biological female wife told me that he identifies as male. And we know that based on trans logic, there is no question to be asked. That means I am gay. So not only am I an Arabic Jew of color, but I'm also a gay man. So sorry, you lose them. This would, this would be one of those examples of something that only a professor could think up of. <laughs> if my wife decides that she's trans and I have to say that she's a he, does that make me gay? But hold on a second. Yes, so iterative, iterative consent, however, again, if yes. I may ask the stupid yes, uh, male chauvinist, cisgender, white male privileged question, do yes, both people have to do this? Like the, 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 the sexy time just consists of saying, are you good? Are you good? Are you good? I'm good. You're good. Like, do I they mean, both have to do it? In an in an ideal utopian world that is genderless, then it, it you would think that. But right now, given that we can all agree that heterosexual sex is by its very nature a form of rape because it is penetrative, then it is. It, by the way, what I just said is Andre, liter, it Andrea is, Dworkin. I mean, that's Andrea. Thank Dworkin's you very question. much. It is literally part of second wave radical feminism, right? So one wonders if they understand how it works for a sexually reproducing species. But in any case, let's not get bogged yeah. down with those biological <laughs> details. So, so yes, you would want for both of us to engage in iterative consent, but for now, the onus is more on me. As by the way, I learned, and this, I'm, I'm not being sarcastic, I was forced to take, not just me, everybody in the university was forced to take mandatory sex training. So it is not at all... Uh, insulting for a 58-year-old man who's been with his wife for 23 years to be 
forced. Otherwise, I cannot remain a professor to be taught by my noble, benevolent employer how to engage in sexy time with my own wife. So that at least made me feel better. Sorry, Gad. I, I did. I, I have listened to that. I have a joke that I have to say to that, but now I just got to get um, my kid seems to have. Um, oh, no. Is your kid hearing all this? He's hearing none of it, but I'll tell you what he is hearing. He is um, here. He's watching Spider-Man on my phone. Okay, there. Get out of here. Sorry. This is how I, I I'm not a bad. I'm not a, I'm not a bad. So I, I got to distract him. He's watching Spider-Man. It's the old one. 2002. The good one. Uh, no, I was going to say, Gad, that's um, I, I had a joke and I was going to say, well, I'm very fortunate because I, I barely have enough time in sexy time to iterate anything. So it would consist of one question and then it'll be done. But then does the brevity of the sexual intercourse cause for retroactive uh, re re revocation of one's consent if it was not all that they were expecting? Can it then retroactively turn into some form of- See, earlier you said I, I was yeah. speaking like a professor. Now oh, you're speaking yeah, like- hold on. hold on, what's going on here? Stop that. Okay, sorry. Say that again. I, I couldn't hear you. I, I was just going to say earlier, you were saying that I was speaking like a professor. Your question right now was that of a brilliant legal mind. I'm not <laughs> sure that I've got the mental acuity to answer all that retroactive contract stuff. I'll leave it for brilliant legal minds like yourself to deal with those details. So you actually had to take a, a what is it, sexual sensitivity? How do you Yeah, yeah. It's it? like, I don't know what, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a mandatory uh, sex training course so like okay at, at university again at, at university 58 years old chaired professor holding the highest professorship at the university for 10 years from 2008 to 2018 married with my wife for 23 years multiple children i had to learn how to interact with you know uh and you do not have the option of saying i am absolutely no. not attending this class no no. That, that would be that would be just cause for you know so i don't know what i mean i'm i don't want to misspeak so i don't know if the repercussions would be you're fired but i know that they kept they they keep sending uh reminders that you have until such and such a day to fill it out you know it's it's uh it's september 12th you have until october oh. 5th to complete this and get your certification and by the way it's not just uh uh, sex seminar that you have to take. You also have to take a seminar on systems of oppression. And so I have to take that because someone who went through the Lebanese civil war where I had to run really, really fast so that I'm not decapitated by, you know, friendly purveyors of the noble, peaceful religion. I need Concordia to teach me about systems of oppression. Uh, so everybody who doesn't know this, I mean, we, we went over it thoroughly in our first stream, uh, escapee of the Lebanese civil war. Uh, the one, one story that you had was when the, the, the shit was hitting the fan and one of your neighbors or, or, uh, someone, a family acquaintance who you'd known very well came by late at night. Um, not, not family acquaintance. Let me just correct you. It, uh, the guy who used to change the, uh, uh, we, we had these, uh, kind of towels, that were cloth right. cloth towels in, in a loop in a loop okay so he would come take the dirty one and put the new one up uh, so you know he's that's it that's our connection to this guy he knocks at the door with a few of his friends to give us pomegranates from the he had just returned from the mountain while there is massive massive street to street fighting i mean just go and do a google search on beirut lebanese civil war to see what it was like 
And uh, yeah, so I was telling that story because had I been dumb enough to open the door, I think it would have ended up yeah. in a very different place. And then, and then a cop says, luckily, there was, I think a cop did come and say, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm bringing them pomegranates. And he says, bringing them pomegranates late at night in the middle of a street-to-street conflict. Don't ever come back. And he yeah. looked at you with a, an eye and said, I'll be back or I'll see you. I'll see you soon. I, I, I'll be, I'll be back for you. And then we left Lebanon before he kindly returned to visit us again. So yeah. So the reason why I tell that story, because believe me in that, in that one, that first year of the civil war that, that we were in, in, Le- in Lebanon, uh, it started by the way, in 1975, uh, there was endless, I mean, horrifying incidents that I experienced that one. I specifically chose it because it still haunts me as as of writing the book because it demonstrated sort of the you know you remember the sliding door thing right like if 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 the doors close you you miss getting on the subway and you never get to meet your wife but right so so the sliding door thing was had I been dumb enough to open that door our lives would have been very different. So the the existential darkness and eeriness of that reality of what would have happened to us that evening uh, looms very large in my mind. And for many, many years, as I explained the parasitic mind, I, I've, I've had, I had horrible dreams uh, where I would wake up in complete terror. Now, luckily, those have very much subsided. So I would say in the last 10 years, I probably don't remember having any such dreams, but for the first maybe 25, 30 years, this was a recurring thing that I would have. And so that pomegranate story really captures the the horror of war. But of course, I knew nothing about oppression until Concordia explained to me what oppression was. And so they make you take these classes. And again, it's like you don't have the option. The, The members of the law societies, at least in Ontario, they were compelling them to basically make these DIE or DEI um declarations that you're going to hire based on you know inclusivity e- equity and all this other crap there was a bit of an uproar and i think the bar society of ontario abandoned that requirement but even i i, I signed up for something and i won't give too many details but one of you know they basically said you have to recognize your implicit bias i was like yeah. what the f-? i said i'm not i i, I was not going to make a stink of this because it would make a problem for somebody else but like cripe if i had a job that required that i i wouldn't have that job for very long so they they don't in all fairness they don't do that in the in the seminars that I took but for example I I'll, I'll give you, some of the details I might be slightly misspeaking but the general gist applies so what they do is they they share with you different vignettes and then you have to answer now I know what they want me to answer I know what the real answer should be, but I know that if I give the real answer, then I can't get through to the next screen. So example, you know, <laughs> you, 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 you're walking on campus and you see a, a young guy complimenting a woman about how sexy she is. Is this a form of sexual violence? And so I write, no. And then a thing comes up, well, no, that's wrong. <laughs> Unwanted compliments are a form of compliment rape or whatever. I'm, I'm being facetious now. Yeah. And so then you then you say, ah, okay, I understand now. So if a guy says, my goodness, you look hot in those pants, that is a form of sexual violence. And we should intervene to stop the compliment rapist from you know walking on campus complimenting women. I get it now. Now I learned. I didn't know until I was 58, but now I know that a misplaced compliment is a form of sexual rape. I got it. 
So it's that kind of stuff. And again, by the way, and not I'm the last one to equivocate, but this is not something specific to my university, right? I mean, every single you know, this is not a Concordia problem. This is a problem in well, in every university and now in every organization. It, it, and there's no I I I do not make public stories that I'm not authorized to make public or disclose other people's stories that are not my own, but all I have to say, there's no but. It exists everywhere in, in, in research, in academia, in, I mean, in, in law firms, in engineering, I mean, everywhere it's, I don't know. I don't know when it became this pervasive, like litmus test of, of insanity. As far as I'm concerned, like you have to apologize for things that don't require apologizing, but again, you don't get to step two unless you get past step one. And it's literally the proverbial, I guess not literal two plus two equals five, or I love big brother. Um, so you write the parasitic mind. Yes, sir. It's not that it's a dark book. Um, it's that it's highlighting the decline of Western society. How familiar are you with the decline of the Roman Empire? I mean, reasonably so. I just finished reading. Where is it? Oh, it's actually, it's holding up the computer. Let me see if I can. <laughs> and while you uh, do that, I'll, I'll get my dog who's driving me crazy. Uh, okay. I just read, oh no, this way. I'm giving, him, I'm giving him some, uh, some free publicity. He, how to think like a Roman Empire. It's a... Uh, a book by a guest who came on my show recently, Donald Robertson. Uh, it's a book talking about, you know, the application of uh, principles from stoicism to, to modern life. And so I'm reasonably familiar, but I'm, I'm guessing you're going, are you going to draw a parallel between? Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to ask you, cause I am, I'm not reasonably familiar. I think I understand conceptually what led to the fall of the Roman empire, you know, and I understand the metaphors now, but, do you understand it better than I do? Undoubtedly. Are there concrete analogies to be drawn between the fall of the Roman empire and the direction of Western society today? Because pe people always say uh, a society in decline tends to obsess and focus on sexuality and these types of things as did the Roman empire. And I just don't understand the fall of the Roman empire enough to understand that analogy. So I'm not willing to make that speculative link. I mean, there are certain historical similarities that we can make, but I'm someone who is, very uh, epistemically humble in that when I know, I know, and what I don't know, I don't know. I'm not, not that I'm, not that I don't know about that parallel, but I'm not confident that there is a direct one-to-one -one parallel in terms of the general phenomenon. What I can tell you though, if that's what you're looking for, a historical context, is that the capacity for human minds to be parasitized by bad ideologies is certainly not unique to the current zeitgeist, right? Mm -hmm. So that has been something that I can point to endless other contexts where that's happened, right? For example, and in, in the parasitic mind, for example, I talk about Lysenkoism, right? Lysenko was a, uh, a Soviet Union uh, geneticist who thought that the laws of heredity, the laws of the fundamental laws of genetics were incorrect because they did not adhere to certain Marxist doctrines. And so he proposed an alternative theory called Lysenkoism. Um, we, we don't have to get into the details, but that is so incorrect in terms of scientifically that it led in terms of the downstream effects to the death of 20, 30 million people from famine, right? So there are an endless number of examples throughout history where we can see the capacity for human minds to deviate from reason, from logic, from common sense, right? Salem witch hunts, and there's a million. We could talk even examples within the Roman Empire. What is unique about the current period, 
are the specific idea pathogens that are parasitizing our minds. You see what I'm saying? So, Absolutely. So, well, it's, 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 it's the Mark Twainian history doesn't repeat, but it tends to rhyme. So you have the similar manifestation, but it just manifests in different concrete ways. Beautiful. Exactly right. So, so it's, and what makes this current period so unique, hence why I ended up writing The Parasitic Mind, having been a professor for almost three decades, is that any one of those idea pathogens might not have been sufficient to bring down the edifices of reason. But once you put them all together in a melange of epistemological destruction, then we do end up with what we have. Now, some people might be saying, well, what are what are these idea pathogens? Well, postmodernism, cultural relativism, militant feminism, social constructivism, biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain human affairs. Uh, you know, all of these different things on their own, they just cause a little fissure within the edifices of reason. Once we weaponize all of them, then everything crumbles. Uh, what is the, so we talk a lot about postmodernism and, and, and people, we, it's the it's the big issue, or at least one of the uh, contributing factors. What, what's the history of postmodernism? When did it become a philosophical idea? It- yes, yes, great question. Thank you. So the the top, th- I mean, there are many different postmodernists, but the the top three sort of the holy trinity of bullshitters of postmodernism are all French, uh, because you know the French are simply more profound than the rest of us. They, you know, je, je, je. so uh, Jacques Derrida, which is deconstruction deconstructionism language creates reality there is nothing outside that which you you label right uh so that's jacques derrida michel foucault and jacques lacan now now there are many others then that that came in but those are some of the foundational ones the fundamental tenet of postmodernism is that there are no objective truths other than of course the one truth that there are no objective truths but this is uh my fundamental problem which i think is it invalidates the philosophy there's no objective truths except for the fact that there are no objective truths means that there are objective truths so the philosophy itself is fundamentally paradoxical contradictory and therefore invalid illegitimate there are objective truths absolutely a hundred percent and but but i can't remember if did we the last time that I was on your show, this that I discussed the example with the uh, the lady who was the date of oh, my. Oh, jeez, I don't think you did because I think you mentioned that to Doctor Drew, and I remember thinking that's damn funny. And if I had heard that, either way, either even if you did, it was it was close to two two years ago that you did this. Tell us the story. You go out for a dinner right. with uh, a postmodernist feminist uh, cultural anthropology student. <laughs> Student, no less. The yeah, student and yeah, quite with it. Sorry. So, so basically, the story goes like this. And apologies to those who've already heard it, but I'm sure many haven't. And even if you've heard it, it's fun to hear it again. Uh, so, one of my doctoral students had just defended his uh, dissertation, his PhD, and so we were going out for a celebratory dinner. Uh, him, his date, uh, myself, and my wife. We didn't have children. I, this was 2002. So this is 21 years ago. So this this predates all the trans stuff by a mile. Uh, and so uh, he calls me up a few hours before our dinner to give me kind of a heads up to say, oh, I just want to let you know that the, the lady I'm bringing to the date tonight, you, you already uh, gave the spoiler alert. Uh, she is a student of uh, postmodernism, women's studies, and uh, cultural anthropology. 
To which I answered, ah, aha, the holy trinity of bullshit. Uh, and so he said, so then, but I, I said, oh, I understand you. You want me to be on my, you know, on my best behavior. Don't worry about it. I'm going to be good. We're going to have a nice evening, which of course, as I always explain to people was a complete and utter lie. I had no intention on staying true to that promise, uh, but I did it politely. I turned to her about halfway through the dinner and I say, oh, I, I hear you're a student of postmodern. Mm -hmm. She goes, yes. I said, oh, well, you know, I kind of wake up every day thinking that there are some universal truths, you know, science and all. And uh, as an evolutionary psychologist, I also think that they are human universals. As a matter of fact, there, there's a book by a Darwinian anthropologist called Human Universals. I, I didn't say this to her. I'm saying now to you, right? So we know that there is an invariant human nature. So do you mind? Now, this is me speaking to her. Do you mind if I maybe share with you what I think is a universal and then you know, we could discuss it. You could tell me how I'm wrong. She goes, yeah, sure. Go for it. I said, is it not true? Is it not a universal that only women can bear children within homo sapiens, within humans? Is that not, is that, is that not true? So she looks at me, can't believe that someone could be such an imbecile, such a mm -hmm. simpleton. And she said, no, it's not true. It's not a universal. I said, it's not a universal that only women can bear children. She said, no. I said, how is that? So then she says that there is some Japanese tribe of some Japanese island where within their cultural, their mythological realm, their folkloric mythological realm, it is the men who bear children. So by me restricting the conversation to the biological realm, that's how I you know, keep women barefoot and pregnant. So then as I tell people, after I recovered from the mini stroke I had at having to listen to such gibberish, I said, okay, well, maybe it was a bit too controversial, too corrosive to to mention something as you know as laden with with the uh, with the minefield as only women bear children so maybe i come up with a less uh triggering example is it not true that since time immemorial from the vantage point of anywhere on earth sailors have relied on the premise that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west is, is that not true so there she used jacques derrida's deconstructionism she said, well, what do you mean by East and West? And what do you mean by the sun? That this, this is what it, it's, it's Zenonian level um, uh, pontification. Like, okay, fine. When, when you break it all down, yes, language means nothing except for that, which we ascri ascribe to it, which are concepts that you give words to describe. And so long as we understand what we're talking about, that's how knowledge is, is, is communicated. Exactly. Otherwise, how would you and I right now have this conversation if we don't have shared meaning? What, right? Like we would just be making gibberish sounds, right? Uh, so anyway, so so when she said that which you call the sun, I might call or I call dancing hyena. I mean, that that's literally the case, dancing hyena. To which I answered, well, okay, fine. The dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west. And then she said, I don't play those label games. Now, why do I always repeat that story? And what, why, why has it become such a, a viral story? Because it perfectly captures the lunacy of postmodernism it th this person was not some you know escapee from a psychiatric institute right well, she, I, well maybe, she, maybe. <laughs> or she might be soon to be joining one because it's just not to be an escapee sorry fair enough fair enough point well taken so so if you have a graduate student who can sit down with me and we can't agree on fundamental principles or fundamental realities such as women bear children and there is such a thing as east and west and there is such a thing as called the sun then 
where does postmodernism take you, right? And that's why in the parasitic mind, I refer to it as intellectual terrorism because there's it, it serves no other value. There's no question. I had a discussion with someone who is a, a good faith person. She's going to be releasing the podcast tomorrow. And I understand, you know, I understand the um, intellectual game behind it where we try to confuse the issues based on the gray zones where people refuse to even acknowledge the black and the white women have babies. We'll say, well, what's a woman? What's, what's having a baby and Gad trigger warning for anybody who's going to see this. There's no blood or there's no grossness. There is something hilarious. Gad, I don't know if you saw this, but I'm going to show it anyhow and then play a few seconds of the rap song. Because I'm in love with this. I'm in love with this guy now, uh, Samson. This is real, by the way. So the person breastfeeding is a man. The person delivering the baby is a woman. But you wouldn't necessarily know based on you know what what they've done to their bodies. Look at this. Oh, I just put it up here. The baby has been able to latch. Oh, I just put it up, oh, I just put it up here. This is a woman on the left the who baby gave has birth. Been able to this latch. is a man. Who's trying to rescue the baby? I've not been able to produce any milk. Hasn't been able to okay produce milk because we're gonna supplement the feeding with formula so that my baby's still getting the the nutrients that they need. And if anybody doesn't um, know, Samson, Gad, you're gonna love this guy. I, I'm trying to get him on on for. I'll play 30 seconds of the rap song. Is this satirical or real? That was real. This is the the rap. The raps. You know, making fun of it now. This guy's name is Samson. That's fucked up. And if that makes me a bigot, well, then what's up? Huh? Again, I, I'm going to have to send you. I went down that guy's YouTube rabbit hole. That sounds really gross. Um, the guy's <laughs> name is Samson. He makes rap uh, about, or at least did nine months ago and plus, about contemporary issues. The video that you saw when people say, uh, no, women aren't the only ones that can give birth. Look, this trans male gave birth no. because she's a woman, had her breasts mastectomized or whatever you want to call it. And then... Uh, gave birth to a baby, but looked like a man. And then you got this man who I, you know, kind of I, has some female attributes trying to breastfeed a baby, talking about how, you know, the baby's latching, but not getting milk. It, it, it feels like Sodom and Gomorrah or the fall of Rome, but I don't know what either of those. By actually. the way, it's postmodernism that offers the, the quote epistemological trajectory that allows you to do that, right? If there are no objective truths, that also applies to the fact that there is no such thing as a truth of male or female, right? You just have to, you know, wave the magic trans wand and anything is possible. This is why, by the way, in the parasitic mind, I talk about what is the commonality across all those idea pathogens? They're really diff completely different, you know, mind pathogens. But what is common to all of them is that they free us from the pesky shackles of reality, right? So, for example, let me just give you one other example. Social constructivism frees us from the pesky shackles of my parental reality. What do I mean by that? Social constructivism presumes that we are all born with equal potentiality, and it is only the the, the you know the 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 schedule of reinforcement in your life that causes you to become Lionel Messi or Michael Jordan. So if I hug my child enough 
or I don't hug them enough, or I give them enough Big Macs, or I don't give them Big Macs, that might be the trajectory by which they could be the next Einstein. We're all born with equal potentiality. Now, that's a very hopeful message. I would love to think that all of my children have an equal potentiality of becoming the next Newton, Einstein, or Lionel Messi. But of course, it's perfectly rooted in bullshit. You and I did not have an equal likelihood of becoming NBA stars. First, we don't have enough vertical height jump. Number two, we're not very tall. So we certainly started off on lower footing, right? But that doesn't feel as hopeful as social constructivism, which says that we are born with empty minds, with equal potentiality, and it's only socialization that makes us what we become. So all of these idea pathogens start off with this noble quest to free us from reality. And in doing so, we end up murdering truth. Um, hold on a second. I'm going to, I'm going to send the link to everybody so they can hear that rap song, but it is, um, again, it's like the iteration of, I'm thinking communism again is, is not equal opportunity, but equal outcome. And it seems that that is applied mutatis mutandis to gender sexual stuff where it has to be equal outcome. And if it isn't, well, we've got to make sure that it, that it is equal outcome and not just equal opportunity. Um, but God, I guess, so the, the parasitic mind was sort of not cynical, but I guess it left a bad taste, uh, in your, in your mouth that you had to come and make a, uh, you know, write another book about finding happiness. So what is the, what, what is hap- the sad of happiness about? Yeah. And, and <laughs> it is interesting. I, I, I'm putting it all together now. This is your own healing, your psychological healing. You have to find <laughs> a path to happiness and not just a path to observing the, the, the abject insanity of our times. What is the book about? No, yeah, thank you so much for asking. Uh, well, in a sense, they are linked in, in several ways. And actually, in chapter one of my forthcoming book, I do talk about that. Look, even when I was mired in the endless culture war fights, I always do it with a twinkle in my eye. There's always humor. There's always sarcasm. There's always satire. So that even when I'm dealing with very serious subjects, subjects of civilizational importance that are attacking the edifices of reason, I still find the capacity to be playful, right? To be jovial, to be happy. And so what led me to write, so I didn't have sort of this a priori trajectory of, oh, I'll write the parasitic mind and then the next one will be the happy book. But what ended up happening through happenstance, through the serendipity and magic of life, is that a lot of people would write to me and say things like, how do you maintain your happiness? How come you always seem to be joking around and you seem like a kid and playful, even though you're obviously a serious professor? What's your secret, professor? And when I would post on my social media, some sort of prescription. Oh, he, here is my, here's the way that I've lost so much weight. That would be some of the most shared content of anything, right? Like, I mean, I share all sorts of very serious content. None of it seemed to, you know, appeal to people as much as, you know, if I share some sort of prescriptive action or some secret to how I live my life, to how I have a successful marriage and so on. And so I thought, well, wait a minute. Why, why don't I, many people are asking me to, to give them the secrets. Why don't I write a book about the sad truth about happiness? And so, so that's kind of the background to the book. So what I basically do in the book is I discuss a few decisions that you can make 
that either increase greatly your likelihood of being happy or miserable. So in, in one of the chapters, I talk about, you know, choosing the right spouse and choosing the right profession. Now, that might sound obvious, but let's stop and analyze it for a second. You know, when you wake up in the morning next to the person that you're married to, uh, if that person is someone that you like, well, you're off on the right side of the, you know, you're getting off on the right side of the bed. Then you go off to your work. If what you do at work is something that brings you great purpose and meaning and joy and happiness and excitement and glee, well, that's great. Now, if you return home to the person that you really like, well, then, you know, it's looking pretty good for you. Now, there is... I don't have the arrogance or hubris to say, read the book, I guarantee you happiness. What I can tell you, though, is that if you implement those prescriptions, it increases your likelihood of being happy, right? So example, how can we make sure that we marry the right person? Well, there is no absolute guarantee, but we do have a lot of scientific evidence that can help us know if we're making the right decision. Example. There are two maxims when it comes to mate choice. There is birds of a feather flock together, or there is opposites attract. Do you care to guess which is the one that is by far the more likely one to guarantee I, it? When it comes to a marriage, I'd have to say birds of a feather flock together. Boom, you got but, it. But there's, there's, a, there, there's a lot of expressions of the English language that have uh, totally mutually incompatible um, meanings, like he who hesitates is lost, look before you leap. Uh, and I can't think of the other good ones now. Uh, and no, but, contextually, but to your point, but yeah. to your point, forgive me for interrupting you. It's not that opposites attract is never operative in the mating uh, market. It's it might be very exhilarating and optimal for a short term mate. If I am sexually introverted and the partner that I'm having a, a little dalliance with is sexually extroverted, whatever that means, or experimental, whatever that difference that opposites attract might actually make for a very pleasant and enjoyable evening. But when it comes to long-term stability, birds of a feather do flock together, as you correctly pointed out. Now, you, the next question might be, well, on, on which attributes? Is it that we should have both colored eyes? Is it that we should both have similar... I, I can tell you, having been, I think, relatively successfully married now, it's going to be 17, 16 or 17 years. It has to be ideologically and not exactly. and not physically because physicality, first of all, evaporates into the wind uh, for some, but that's not what's important. That's not what allows you to sleep next to someone. Shared else. beliefs, shared attitudes, shared life goals. Those are the things that we need to be assorting on. And if, if we do engage in assortative mating on those beliefs, it increases the likelihood of us getting married. Uh, I mean, being successful in our marriage by, by a long shot. So yeah. that would be one. Of, go ahead. Oh, the other one was out of sight, out of mind, and absence makes the heart grow fonder. <laughs> Two mutually incompatible maxims of life. Sorry. Okay. Beautiful. Uh, now, when it comes, for example, to jobs, uh, there are many ways by which we can either increase or decrease our happiness. I argue in the book that one of the most direct ways to ensure that you have purpose and meaning in your job is if you instantiate your creative impulse. Now, instantiating your creative impulse can come in many forms. I can be a chef. I create culinary art. I could be Viva Frey. I create content that people consume and love, right? You used to be a successful lawyer and you said, I don't want this. I want to create content. That's what I want to play there. And I'm going to come to play in a second because it's also in the book. Uh, in my case, I create by writing books. I create by writing academic papers. I create by also creating online content. So I'm constantly in creative mode. 
I can be an architect and create a bridge or a beautiful building. So all other things considered, if you are creating, whether it be a movie or a dish or content online or a book, you are certainly increasing your, the likelihood of you having that existential glee when you wake up in the morning and say, I'm excited. What am I going to create today? Okay. So that would be an example. So, so choose the right mate, choose the right job. And then throughout the chapters, I have different mindsets that you can adopt, each of which greatly increase your chances of being happy, or if you don't adopt them, of being miserable. So earlier I used the word play. So I've got a whole chapter titled Life as a Playground, right? So the idea of immersing yourself, I mean, literally in existential play. So if you see my wife and I, we're constantly joking with each other. I'm constantly joking with my children. As you see, if you follow my content online, I've got a whole bunch of skits that I've now become very famous for that are all rooted in satire and playfulness, right? Now, that doesn't stop me from being a very serious professor when I have to go give a talk at Stanford or USC. One does not negate the other, but I'm playful. But by the way, in the book, I talk about that and in, in, even in the most dire of circumstances, I mean, there's nothing more dire than the Holocaust. People were engaging in play. The movie Life is Beautiful, Oscar-winning movie from 1997, was about a father protecting his son from the horrors of the Holocaust by making it seem as though the whole thing that was happening was just a game playful. There's a whole book written by, I think, a German historian, if I'm not mistaken, I can't remember who it was, about how the Jews were engaging in various play activities in the concentration camps. I engaged in play behavior in the Lebanese civil war. As a matter of fact, my parents told me, don't cross this line when you're playing outside, because then that puts you within the eyesight the, the visual sight of the snipers who would blow off our heads. So I literally was playing, making sure that I don't cross a particular invisible line. And yet I still needed to engage and play. As a matter of fact, you probably can't see it. I've got a, you can't, can you, can you see there's like a scar on this finger? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to say that. Oh, well, I do see two wrinkles, but uh, I think I see a scar. Above There's a scar. That scar was, I was playing with a cousin of mine with a knife and some, and a slingshot outside Lebanese civil war. And I cut myself really badly and I still have, but that came from my desire to engage in play as a little boy, a 10, 11 year old boy. So science is a form of play, right? You could think of nothing is more austere than science. It's a serious endeavor. no. It's the highest form of intellectual play, right? What are scientists doing? They are solving a puzzle. Instead of the puzzle being a thousand pieces that you put together, a jigsaw puzzle, there's a whole bunch of variables floating in the world. I'd like to connect some of these to solve a puzzle. Which variable predicts which other variable? So if you approach life with a playful mindset, my goodness, you're going to be happier. Now, I then discuss a whole bunch of other things, seek variety, try to avoid regret, all kinds of stuff. That so, and let, This is advice that you're giving, which is, I love these types of books, which are chapter by chapter, anecdotal, but also backed up with your area of expertise, which is development, uh, what do we call it? Evolutionary uh, behavioral psychology. science, evolutionary psychology, exactly. So it, it's exactly what you said. It's taking my personal anecdotes, combining them with ancient wisdoms, 
and contemporary science to hopefully offer you some cool prescriptions. So it's not self-helpy like the the B. I mean, it's really rooted in well, in in my in my li- I hate to say lived experience that sounds postmodernist, but it's it's in my you know I'm 58 years old. I have a lot of experience, so it's sharing my. Pr- so there's a lot of God stories. People people love God stories. There's tons of, and there are some God stories that I've never shared ever in public. I won't share one right now, but it involves the Mossad. You want to hear that story. I'm telling you, it's a big one. I'm well, not going to share it. Don't wait, ask for, wait for the rumors of Gad being Mossad, uh, a member of Mossad. Oh, it, we might get there. Well, we might get there. But but the bottom line is, you know, in on any given page, you might have me telling a story, linking it to Epictetus and Seneca, and then here comes the neuroscience on the next paragraph. And so it's that marriage. If I've done a good job, then hopefully you'll appreciate that marriage. Okay, now the kid, the kid is getting restless, but he's going to have to wait a bit because I love what I'm listening to. Um, but again, this is, this is not my struggle. I don't think I'll ever lose my sense of humor, but I don't think I'll ever lose my frustration at the world either. How can Some people are going to have the guilt of happiness, which I think is part of the root of the problem of all of what we're seeing today is you have people who are who don't know how to deal with their own not privilege because i i loathe that word it's an inaccurate word but they their good fortune and they don't understand how to deal with their good fortune and so they feel on the one hand incapable of just appreciating it um without internalizing it for the purposes of on the one hand trying to find unhappiness or misfortune within themselves that might not exist or if they can't do that to find it in other people so they can heal it in other people how can people not feel guilty about feeling their own happiness if i can ask you a very psychologically profound question that's a good one Uh, well i mean in a sense you're almost describing in a in a much more dire context what people experience when they experience survival guilt right the plane crashes uh i was seated in 16d i survived but the that the poor guy next to me died, and then you're o- you're overcome with this feeling of survival guilt. What what's so special about me that the cosmos would allow me to survive? So in a sense, that's what you're talking about, which is w- w- why should I be happy while there's so much misery in the world? Look, the reality is we can all do our part to make the world a better place. So the fact that I am swimming in my happiness doesn't mean that I don't care about other people's suffering. As a matter of fact. I spend half my time on social media fighting all kinds of injustices precisely because I'd like to weigh in in however small way I can to make the world a better place. But that doesn't mean that I need to feel guilty about me being happy, right? I mean, wh- why wh- why should it imply that I should I don't deserve to be happy? By the way, here's some good, maybe good or bad news, depending on how you look at it, depending if you have half full, half glass half full or half empty type of guy. About 50% of our happiness is inscribed in our genes, right? Now that you might say, well, that's bad news because that means some of us have a sunny disposition whereas others have a gloomy disposition. There's nothing I can change about that. Well, no, because that implies that there is another 50% that is up for grabs, that is open to you willfully altering your trajectory of happiness, of being the architect and the orchestrator of your own happiness. So yes, you and I, I think we've got to know each other well. We both seem to be sort of very jovial, happy people. And so we already are leading on, you know, climbing Mount Happiness because we have a sunny disposition. But I bet you that if we think about some of the decisions that we make, some of the mindsets that we adopt, we probably are also increasing our happiness by adopting a good mental hygiene of happiness. 
Okay, if what you mean is it's genetic or in the genes, as in you're born with it, but it could also be trained like exercise and healthy living, that's one thing. But I think people always tend to value the innate skill over the learned habits, because if you don't keep working on the habits, you'll lose them. And then people can sort of train themselves to be grateful and be happy. But then if they stop practicing, they're going to lose it. Whereas those who are genetically predisposed to having, you know, the sense of humor in even in the darkest of circumstances, they'll never lose that even if they don't practice it. I guess it's a question of making the best of what you have. But um, yeah, uh, so the question is going to be, you're now you're living in Canada. Yes. L- through what we're currently living. A path of unhappiness. <laughs> All the things equal. Go ahead. Well, hold on. I, 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 is there a chat that said, Gad, I appreciate your work immensely and your sense of humor even more. Thank you. That's Chet Chisholm. Thank you. And then Fleet Lord Avatar says, when you escaping Canada, Mr. Sad. Now, the question is this. Um, when are you escaping Canada? What, what, what's, what's your life plan so far? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, look, uh, probably the thing that I most... That makes me most, I mean, knock on wood, you know, I, I have health. My children are healthy. My wife is healthy. All of that is good. So the thing that makes me stay up at night most is that I don't wish to remain in Canada. Not, look, Montreal is a beautiful city. You're a Montrealer. There are incredible, you know, things about Montreal. I'll be forever grateful to Canada and to Quebec for having uh, welcomed us in when we would have otherwise been killed on the street. Uh, I could never take that away. So I will never not be infinitely grateful for, uh, you know, the welcoming nature of Canadian society. But I think I've paid my dues after 40 plus years in Canada. There are places that I'd rather be, one of which really Canada can't control, and that is the weather. I'm someone who is, uh, you know, from the Mediterranean area, of course. I'm from Lebanon. Look how my skin gets when the when the summer comes, uh, you can basically tell uh, which month I'm doing a YouTube clip by the glow of my skin. I'm either a bronze god or I'm sickly green monster. If in February, I look sickly. In June, I look good. Well, I want to be in a place where I always look good, if I can put it that way. So that may be Florida. Historically, my promised land has been Southern California, but I understand that it's extremely woke. I understand that the taxes are almost as bad as Quebec. So, inshallah, as we say, may I soon be joining you in Florida. Insala- Hold on. Some- someone once said that to me in a park. What, what does that mean again? Inshallah, God willing. Okay. Um, now, but, and, but as far as the, I mean, the wokeness, the, you know, fi- the finding happiness in as much as you can, uh, you're, you're now living in Canada, going through what's going on there with Bill C-11. Uh, politically, what does it take, or can there can there be a point of no return for a society at large? Like, when, when people say, like, and I've said it, you know, I, I I really feel as though the government of Canada has made me hate the place that I've called home, but not the people, not the geography, not the rivers, not the lakes, not the history, yeah. uh, the political presence. And what I was finding you know, very, very depressing and very disappointing is the amount of Canadians who don't seem to have a problem with it, who seem to be drinking this, this Kool-Aid. We always talk about what, what can we do and what, you know, where does it go? How can you cause people to realize the wrong? Or do you think you're, you're approaching a point or we are approaching a point in Canada that's past the point of no return? Yeah. So I think for me, I'll, I'll speak specifically for me and then we can, you know, generalize it to, to the greater community. Uh, I think there are two things, I mean, forgetting about the weather, there are two ideological uh, 
classes of problems that I, I, I can identify. There's all the parasitic idea pathogens, and then there is the parasitic taxation. Now, these, one could argue, are, are, are related to each other. Uh, so, n- in my view, no society can, over the long run, withstand the type of parasitic taxation that we have. I mean, in Canada in general, and Quebec, it's even worse, right? Because what ends up happening? Someone like me, someone like you says, wait a second. I mean, how much can I be paying taxes for the privilege and luxury of living here, right? And by the way, I just wanted to clarify, you you are mean literal taxes, not not spiritual taxes. Like no, 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 literal taxes. taxes. Okay. So, so think about it for a second. 1917, if I'm not mistaken, income tax comes in as a temporary measure. It's only going to be temporary. First what, time it ever. It was 15% we'll, at the time, give or take 10 or 15? And it wasn't levied on everyone. Now, fast forward temporary measure 100 and eight years later, when you add up all of the taxes that I paid when this book came out, The Parasitic Mind, where is it? How can I point to it? No, it's the other, no, this this way, this way. Uh, you know, it got up to almost 60%. So think about it for a second. I write a book from the neuronal firings of my mind, from what I experienced in Lebanon, from what I lived as a professor for 30 years. It's my ideas, my words, my humor, my satire, my stories. And there is some amorphous agent, some mafia, but it's a legal mafia, right? The the illegal mafia extorts from me three to 6% for protection. But the legal mafia says 60%, 58% of what you make belongs to me. Give it up. That's the right thing to do. And if you don't do it, I'm coming for you. So what would then constitute me being a slave? Now imagine, and, and I'm using this, these words not hyperbolically, but literally, 0% tax would be, let's call it complete freedom, okay? The, the libertarian utopia, okay. 100% tax would be, I am a complete slave. So if I'm paying 58% tax, I'm much closer to being a complete slave. Let's put it, oh, can oh, I yeah, yeah. Sorry, go for it. One more, one more thing. Forgive me. Thank you so much for giving me so much time to, to speak. Uh, let's put it this way. If we use the time scale, some of you may have seen it. When is it that you first start earning your money if we use the January 1st as the time clock? Mm-hmm. Well, does it make sense that it's end of August, September, that the government allows me to start making money? So from January 1st, Till end of August, I work for free. That can't be right. So, so for me, that's the thing, frankly, that makes me want to leave Canada. It's because Canada is the place, I hate to say it, for those who wish to benefit from the parasitic system. And it takes suckers like me to fund everybody else's parasitism that allows the system to flourish. I'll say um, it had to do with the amount of taxes. Oh, no, I was going to say, when you say 0% libertarian, totally free, 100% total slave, 58%, you're, you know, you're closer to the 100%. The government will say, well, or, or people say, you don't have to work if you don't want to do it. And, and they don't understand that's the very problem, is that it, it deters people from wanting to work. And I know everybody out there is going to say, well, the streets don't pay for themselves. Your shitty healthcare system doesn't pay for itself. Um, it, the, the problem is, that you're paying in advance for something that you might not use and that even when you decide to use it or need to use it, it sucks for everyone, even those who don't pay into it. And and forgive me for interrupting you, 
if I have a ruptured Achilles tendon and you have a ruptured Achilles tendon and we both go to get it fixed using our healthcare system, why did I have to pay $300,000 of taxes while you paid $3,000 of taxes for that same free healthcare, right? What's the moral framework that causes two people to pay radically different amounts for the same service? Let's suppose we all say we're all going to pay $10,000. Fine. We can debate whether $10,000 is enough or not. But when you go buy a car, the, the car dealer doesn't say, well, wait a minute, tell me what how much money you make. And as a result of that, I'll tell you what is the price that you pay. Why should I pay 50 times more taxes for the right to live in Canada? Well, and some would say it's the price you pay for a, a free civil society where the, the poor are not literally eating the rich. The problem is if, if what you got was commensurate or even proportionate, if not on a personal level, at least on a social level for what's being paid into it, then you could say, OK, fine, you pay a lot, but you get good stuff. The problem, the ultimate problem is you pay a lot and you get shit. And the reason why you get shit is because of government corruption, government bloat, government waste, lining their own pockets. And then the, you say, like, I, I, if I would pay for I'd sooner give it to charity and know that the charity is using it properly than give it to these corrupt government officials who I know are squandering it. And 100%. And the idea that people say, well, what are you going to do? Sit on your cash and sit on your pile's money? No, that's the other point is that if you, it, it's not like if you don't pay it in taxes, you're not going to spend it quite the opposite. And so the, the, it's just like giving money to the house. It's very frustrating. So, someone said, by the way, hold on. I think I can feel this one better than Gad. Fleet Lord Avatar says, Mr. Sad, car home insurance and property taxes are higher in Florida than 47 other states. That may be true, and that's not to say that Florida is perfect. Florida, I think, accounts for like 40%. I think it's something like car accident fraud. 40% uh, of it, it comes from Florida. Something along those lines. There's, there's some outrageous problem that results for car insurance being outrageously high in Florida. Home insurance, yeah, you got, you got hurricanes and you got a bunch of problems. Um, but I can tell you now, having done the private healthcare system in the States, you know, you pay a lot for premiums uh, versus pay a lot in taxes for healthcare in Canada. On the one, you might be paying the same amount at the end of the day, but at least you pay for it when you need it. And when you need it, you don't end up dying in an ER like you do in Nova Scotia and across Canada. And it's like, if people don't think you end up voting with your dollar and you have a, a socialist dream turn into a failed state nightmare, look at, well, look at Venezuela. Well, I was thinking, by the way, and I started, I've probably written about 5,000 words of potentially my next book. I don't know if that's going to be the next book. It, I started it immediately after the last year's taxation season because I was just so existentially raped. I mean, I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't make sense of the world after what had happened. And you and I, I think I talked about it privately, yeah. but in any case, one of the things that I argue in, in this working draft of potentially a future book is uh, the idea that socialism and communism are truly antithetical to human nature, right? Yeah. I mean, E.O. Wilson, the famous evolutionary biologist famously said regarding socialism slash communism, great idea, wrong species. Now, why did he say that? Because he, he is an entomologist who studies social ants. Social ants have a communist system. All of the worker ants are equal in rank. They are indistinguishable from each other. And there's one reproductive queen that is different from everybody else. So a communist system could make sense for some species, not for humans. It is antithetical to the human condition. So 
Now, the other thing I would say that is contrary to, you know, to, to science and reality when it comes to communism, we know from B.F. Skinner and behaviorists in general that humans and animals in general do operate along cause and effect mechanisms, stimulus response, rewards and punishment. So imagine when you have a taxation system like the government that can always come to me with a gun to my head, metaphorically speaking, but it's almost literal, and say, pay up. What we do with the money is none of your business, asshole. Now you go ahead and write more books so that we can take more money from you. How we decide to squander it is not your business. So there are no consequences to your squander. There's no consequences to your waste. We don't line you up in a street corner and execute you if you are corrupt. You just re-up, you just run for another election and then we reward you again, Justin Trudeau. So. How can such a system perpetuate itself? Well, it can perpetuate itself because when 95% of Canadians benefit from the parasitic system, then it is left for me to stand on top of the mountain, quote, whining about being wealthy, while everybody else looks at me and says, stop whining. Why don't you pay your fair share, asshole? Well, guess what? At the end of the day, when I do all my calculations, I always wonder, how come I don't seem to have any money left in the bank? I mean, how could it be that I wrote such an international bestseller and I'm not swimming in money because all my money was taken from me? People really um, say the people who don't pay the taxes, and this is not a hierarchical thing, the people who don't pay taxes or who don't make enough to pay certain taxes don't necessarily appreciate there's a deterrent effect where like, why make $100,000 literally when 48000 goes to the government on, say, 44000 $45,000 on direct income tax? Then you got your 15% sales tax off everything you buy. Then you got your home uh, mutation tax, your welcome tax. Then you, and they tax you on death. And people don't appreciate that it's not, it should not be viewed as a luxury to be remunerated and rewarded for, for the fruits of your labors. It should just be called human nature. And then when you fully appreciate that in Canada, I think it's something like 20% of the population pays 80% of the taxes. Um, It it creates an entitlement in in a different group of people where it's not hard work anymore. It is you owe it to us. And if you don't do it, then you become morally culpable for not doing it as if there are not options in the world that will you know, ultimately let these things And there's a word for it. It's called parasitic. <laughs> so, so I thought actually of my next book being called the, the Parasitic Government or something to that effect. Because, I mean, it literally is that, right? I mean, and I see it when I would post angry tweets about how parasitic the taxation, I mean, just how brutally unfair it is. Like, it literally drives you almost to financial ruin you'd get all sorts of Canadians saying, stop whining, you asshole. At least you made money. But I don't owe you that money. No, <laughs> I wrote that book. And, and so it's not, it's as though it's it's a luxury to pay the tax to the government. It's a luxury that, first of all, people can go out there and, 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 and work and then see what it feels like. And then they make a decision and say, well, Jesus, I'm just going to work under the table and then publicly work under the table, make, uh, you know, pay, pay lesser taxes and then take, under under the table black market cash or what's it called uh is it called black market it's not yeah, called black, black market, black market. Yeah. um which is what uh, you know uh, invariably happens because human nature is what it is for a great many people why pay tax when you don't have to and why declare when you don't have to 
Uh, you know, and by the way, so everybody appreciates the difference between parasitism and symbiotic relationships is the parasite ends up killing the host, the symbiotic relationship, which is, you know, the, the, um, remora on the shark. Yeah. Well, the remora doesn't kill the shark. They actually help each other. And that has never been, uh, as far as I can tell from the history of humanity, the relationship between citizens and the government, it's, it's certainly been more parasitic than symbiotic. Um, so now, but meanwhile, again, you had, you learned so much from your first, your, your first book, you're doing it again with the second one. Um, or rather, fourth and fifth. Four, I'm sorry, you're, the, the, the second. Uh, what did you call it? Oh, no, not trade book. Trade book. Trade book. It's yeah. your third trade book. Third, third trade book, exactly. Um, but and is is it as bad as? Um, I mean, I, I remember what it was like a year ago, and every time I go back into Canada, it feels sort of like stepping back into the asylum. It's it's getting worse in 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 Quebec and Canada, right? Or well, I, I mean, I and, and you see it in in well small ways. For example, there is no street that I can go on that hasn't been in perpetual uh, construction for the past, you know, 10 years, right? I mean, how, how could it be that a particular area has been under never-ending construction for years, right? It's I'll, like 2027, it will be over. Gad, I'll field that one. Those cones, those orange cones, Montreal is known as the orange cone city. Well, they pay a buck fifty per cone per day. Something along, something along those lines. You know who has the contract for that? Two entities that do not care who they pay and two entities that do not care who they charge. And why? Because it's not their money. And, and nobody, nobody spends somebody else's money more wisely than they would spend their own. And you have the government spending other people's money. And I can't hear you. You're dead. Son of a gun. Oh, you're back. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, back. What part did you not hear? Did, did, did you yes. Hear uh, nobody spends their money or something like that. Nobody spends other people's money more wisely than they spend their own. The old Yiddish expression, everyone's a fool until it comes to their own affairs. Uh, that's that's the government. Um, okay. That's, that's so, uh, well, we don't need a life plans. Okay, fine. Uh, what else is going on in your, in your life these days? In my, oh, you're very sweet. Uh, well, uh, we are uh, going to, on a personal note, we're going to Portugal in a few weeks uh, for a little vacation before this guy. I better see everybody going out. Some shameless uh, promotion. Go out, pre-order it. Can I just before I, I say more about Portugal? Please. Can I? It's incredibly important to pre-order books. Let me let me give you the appeal for why it is so. the f The first day that a book is released, all of the pre-orders get released they get counted as part of the sales of that first day so let, let's suppose there are eight thousand pre-orders that have been instantiated now the book is released on july 25th those eight thousand sales become officials or pre-orders become sales on day one so that means that if many many people pre-order the book so that off the gates you get all of these massive you know uh, huge sales then it increases your chances of hitting the bestsellers list. Once you hit the bestseller list, it becomes an avalanche. It becomes a domino effect. So that the once the book is on the bestseller list, it increases the chances that more people see it, blah, blah, blah. So if you support my work, if you you know don't fund me in some other way and you'd like to read my work, please consider pre-ordering it because it really matters once the book is released. I'm, I'm, I'm sending out the, it's an Amazon affiliate link, Gad, so I'm going to get like one penny for every sale that goes through. Uh, the Amazon affiliate link is out there. It's on Amazon. Yeah, the, the, the pre-orders also lets people know, lets, it lets the publisher know the level of interest and it becomes itself sort of a marketable. Uh, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So going back to Portugal, uh, we're leaving for two weeks. 
we're going to just hopefully turn off all the phones, not check any emails, because once I return, the book will then be released two weeks later. And I, I don't know if you know, uh, Viva, but uh, when you write these sort of high-profile trade books, it is literally written in the contract the number of media that you have to do, because obviously the publisher wants to make sure that you're available for all of these you know, high-profile media. So once the book is about to be released, the, the insanity that happens is just completely unbelievable. So already now, just the first week of the book's release, if you saw my travel schedule, it's just, it's mind blowing. So I am doing all of the high profile shows that you could think of Joe Rogan and Greg Gutfeld and Megan Kelly and all the rest of them. And I'll, and unlike when the parasitic mind came out, which is was under COVID. So I just had to turn on the, the computer and it was all under zoom. So you got to actually travel and you have to travel everywhere. And so I, pretty much spend half my day just trying to coordinate and schedule uh, with the assistance of my wife who helps out and the publicist, just to schedule all of the moving parts. So it's very, very exciting. And uh, I hope it will be successful because it's really, truly a positive, fun book. I hope people will enjoy it. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna bring up one last question. And Gad, if you ha- would you have 15 minutes for I our, have our locals? I have as much time as you need because there's an expression in Arabic which I'm going to first say it in Arabic, and then I'm going to translate it. Whenever you're going to say goodbye to someone, you say in Arabic, means it is impossible to be satiated of you. And so therefore, you can keep me as long as you want. I'm all yours. Go. All right, well, I'll, I'll, for the TMI for everyone out there, I got one kid who's starting to lose it, but has been very good, and dog poop. I won't say what hotel I'm staying at, but it's a dog-friendly hotel, no carpet, so it's easy to clean up. Right. Um here, this, I said I would. I said I would get back to this one. Gad, what strategies should the right implement to battle the leftist takeover institutions, i.e., conquest, second law of politics? I don't know what conquest, second law of politics. What does that mean? I don't know actually either. But uh, uh, what? What? I guess the question is, but practically speaking, what can what can people do? I uh, and I, let me see if I'm going to read your mind, Gad. Go. Cue your inner honey badger. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I call it activate your inner honey badger. Basically, what that says is be ideologically fierce in defending these first principles, these ideological principles, don't cede the floor uh, and the, the trenches to the left, right? They've taken over all of the key institutions and everybody says, well, I'm too busy. I've, you know, I've got my daughter's graduation today. I've got to buy the tomatoes tomorrow. I've got this, I've got that. You know, God said, we'll, we'll deal with the culture war. He's a, he's a, fart, uh, uh, a smart, funny guy. He'll handle it. Uh, no, don't diffuse responsibility onto others. I understand that not everybody has the same sphere of influence that is available to them, but within your sphere of influence, you can affect change. So if you're a rich person and you're on the right, call your the president of your alma mater and say, hey, you know that $10 million that I was going to give you? If a single person gets the platform for the next year, there goes a $10 million. Guess what? The president will listen to you and on and on and on. So all I'm asking for people, as you said, activate your inner honey badger, defend these principles, and we will redress the departure from reason. All right, now I, I'm sending the link to our locals community. I hear some serious noise at this place. Lo- I'm gonna send the link to our locals community and get, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, an- that, that answer because I think I might have something to add. I was listening to Riley Gaines on Tulsi Gabbard today. Right. And Riley Gaines is the, you know, the, N- the NCAA, the, the, the swimmer. Yeah, yeah, the swimmer who got, who got booted off the, uh, the, the platform by Leah Thomas. Um, and she said, she said uh, that being Riley Gaines, like she was too shy to say anything. She was too quiet. She's like, she was waiting for the coach to say something for her. 
and the coach never came. And then when she, it's only when she gets her trophy, uh, you know, she gets booted off the, the, the third place podium because the photo op needed to be the trans, the trans athlete who took her spot. She's like, well, that's it. Now, now I have nothing holding me back. And she came out. She dealt with, you know, what I think is online blowback, which is virtually not real at all. And then she found that as she did it, more people came out and she started something of a movement of the women in women's sports saying, look, in as much as we'd love to have someone fight for us, we have no choice but to do it ourselves. And yes. I think that's what everyone has to come to the realization that at the end of the day, nobody's going to take care of your own stuff except for yourself. And so you have to do it. And in so doing it, you might just see that the courage is contagious and other people start coming up and saying it. And when you see 14 year old kids coming up and saying it, you know, the 14 year old girl who got in trouble at her school for saying, I'm not going, I'm not going into a, a locker room with a, with a boy. Uh, when you have Josh Alexander out of Canada taking flack, a 16 year old kid for fighting the battle of adults, that's the inspiration. And people should feel either, uh, they should feel somewhat ashamed, although understandably not everybody can risk losing their job. But like the old saying goes, you know, they can't get all of us. And if exactly. people just start, start but, doing it, uh, yeah, go for it. But if I can, and, and I'm not, this is not taking any credit away from Riley Gaines. And I, I think she's courageous. She's wonderful. And as you said, she started a movement. But when you say what compelled her to speak out is when she was personally yep. affected. I don't mean to be unforgiving and a purist, but that to me is not good enough because not everyone who needs to speak out will otherwise be personally affected by the nonsense. So if we wait until people are personally damaged by a particular idea pathogen, then we're not going to solve the problem. So instead, you need to be compelled by violations of deontological principles, right? So I could say, well, I left the Middle East. There are no ways by which Islam can affect me. I'm in Canada now. I don't need to speak out against some of the tenets that, that are problematic. No, I get pissed off whenever deontological principles are, are violated. And therefore, I wait in on things that really have no personal connection to me. So I would implore people to not wait until their child is affected or they are affected before they suddenly find their testicles and find their spines. Instead, what you should be saying is, are there fundamental principles on which Western enlightened societies are built on? And if so, do I have the courage to defend them irrespective of whether they personally affect me or not? I think that's the right way to go. Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Uh, the poem from the Holocaust, at first they came for the trades unions or whatever it was called, but I didn't say anything because I wasn't one of them. Boom. I think the, the lesson from the Riley Gaines, it's true. Most people only not feel compelled, but are compelled to act when the injustice hits them. The learning lesson from Riley Gaines is it will come. It's just a matter of time. So you might as well be preemptive about it. Beautiful. Um, I agree. All right. Now we're going to end this here. Again, you will uh, you will start a locals community one of these days, but I'm going to show I you will. the beauty of the locals community. Everybody, come on over to locals. I'll take some exclusive questions there, and I'm going to let my kid run wild because locals community knows. Uh, oh, <laughs> they, I should... they... oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was saying that's it. So uh, I'm going to end this here. I'm going to end it on Rumble, and uh, do, we'll do five or 10, maybe 15 minutes, take some questions on locals. Uh, Gad, you want to have a last word? Uh, I just want to say that uh, you, I, I should give you credit, you have been by far one of the staunchest guys who's been trying to get me to join Locals, and I hope to do it soon. In the meantime, yes, in support Twitter. of Elon Musk, 
uh, you know, being the guy who's trying to protect freedom of speech and so on, I did start a subscribers only option on Twitter for very, very little, the equivalent of a latte per month. You get, uh, you know, exclusive content. Please consider going on my Twitter bio, signing up for, for a monthly subscription. It's very, very little money. And hopefully we can have fun together. So the book is coming out. It's called A Sad Truth About, about Happiness, happiness. Secrets for Leading the Good Life, July 25th. But please pre-order ASAP. I'm going to blast that Amazon link around this afterwards. Rumble, thank you all very much. Tomorrow I might take the day off and drive 12 and a half hours to get back to Montreal in one day. Um, we'll hang uh, out when you come, right? Dude, a thousand percent, Gad. We'll go to, we'll go to one of your By the way, my, do- my daughter and wife. Uh, and uh, my daughter. Our daughter. Your, our- your daughter earlier yeah, today. Our- so everybody knows, like, oh, they were together today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, everybody. I don't know if everybody knows. Our daughters are actually friends. They are. Uh, okay, so I'm going to end it on Rumble. I'm going to go over to Locals. We're going to take some questions there, and uh, Gad, stick around. Rumble, thank you all. See you soon. Locals, I'll see you in 30 seconds now. All right, Ethan, now you can run wild. We're still live. We're still live, so make sure let's see, to make sure that he's presentable. Can I just tape something for my exclusive folks? Oh, please, yes. Now you are, Gad, we're still live to Locals. Uh, so oh, so can I do it now or I can't do it now? I'll do it now. Do it now. But okay. bear in mind also, when I save this entire video, uh, this is this is going to go on Rumble and YouTube as well. But do okay. go. Through. Okay, now what, what are you going to do? This is exclusively for say, – say hello to my subscribers. Oh, this is for your Twitter subscribers. Yes, sir. Uh, you have made a very, uh, very wise decision to support Gad on Twitter. I haven't. I don't think I've uh, applied for it yet, or either been approved. I have to see which one I did. Uh, good work, people. For a cup of coffee a month, you're going to get a lot smarter and um, wiser. Oh my goodness! What an endorsement! Thank yeah. you so much. Cheers. Do, have you All noticed right. we have the we have the same grimace wrinkle right here? You got it right there on your. We have the exact same. I think it's. I think it's the reality wrinkle. You. You must. You must. I mean, I know we're both Jews, but you, you, any chance that you have some Sephardic blood in you, or you? No. no uh, wait, Sephardi. No, Sephardi. For or, who, well, I'm. Sephardi. I'm technically. I'm not. I mean, Sephardi is wrong. I'm Mizrahi, right? Yeah. Right. But, no, I'm. I'm Eastern European as far really? as anybody. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my my grandmother. So every, Sephardi. Means what her, explains your good looks then? Oh, I don't know. And and my, the way my skin deals with the sun, it's just exactly. so beautiful. It, okay. Now, get we're on. We're on. Hi. You can come and say hi, but I'm still live. So don't do anything embarrassing. Uh, Gad, until it's empty. We, see, now i got these tips in Rumble that I'm going to – in Locals. Uh, until it's empty says iterative equals keep your schmeckle in your pants. <laughs> so I have a – Gad, my, my number one secret to happiness, keep your schmeckle in your pants. It's I, I, you, you, I've actually – I remember you telling me that in a private conversation. Oh yeah, no. It's like, and and my my mentor as a lawyer said, you want to stay rich, don't get divorced, and you want to stay happy. Uh, make sure you know the happy wife, happy life. It's not just a, it's not just a rhyming expression. Mandalici says, Viva, how does this doctor feel about fidelity? Yes. I well, I think it's very important. I can I can answer that. Look, I actually talk about that in the book. Uh, look, we've evolved both the deep desire to engage in long-term coupling, meaning, let's say, marriage, while at the same time also being driven by sexual variety seeking. But to your point about, what is it? Keep your schmeckle. Keep your schmeckle in your pants. How how not to have your wife kill you when you're sleeping? I mean, that's... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Life is about trade-offs. Life is about costs and benefits. Life is about having multiple Darwinian pulls 
pulling you in different directions, right? I've evolved the gustatory preferences to want to go now to Harvey's, which is the best fast food place in the world, and eat three gorgeous burgers. I've evolved that. But I also have evolved the capacity for constraint and self-control. Which of these Darwinian pulls wins is up to me, right? So, so it is perfectly natural that we've evolved a desire to stray whether we do it or not is a calculus that we each have to deal with. But I agree with Viva that in the if I put it all together, notwithstanding the million of gorgeous women over there, I would not want to uh, succumb to that temptation at the risk of uh, you know threatening my marriage because I love my family and wife too much for that. It's an amazing thing. I, it, my fear of death and my desire to live are the things that keep keep me from infidelity for two reasons. One. I take for granted if I were to be inf infidelious, if I were to be disloyal, I mean, that's grounds for my wife to kill me when I'm sleeping. So like just self-preservation, <laughs> that one, one reason. Fear of disease is the other one where even if I didn't feel loyalty uh, and the compulsion to remain loyal to my spouse, the fear of disease is enough to say like, geez, Louise, there's something to be said about being married, being in a stable relationship, knowing where you both have been to make sure that, you know, uh, Nothing like that happens. You know, it's funny. Before you go on, just I'm going to share some personal information, although I think most people already know this about me. I'm also a huge germ germaphobe. And I've often, when, when discussing, having conversations with, with friends who, who have gone around, one of my reactions has been, but don't you get disgusted at the possibility of not knowing where this, this person has been? And so I, I completely sympathize with your position because I think my germ contamination fear overrides my libidinal drive so. <laughs> for me 1000 uh, percent. i got a, well i won't share the tmi story but yeah there's no, no question uh, yeah. same uh it, okay hold on one second so we got gad i'm 62 this is from pam walker i don't have that many more years i need to hear the massage story <laughs> ah, no exclusive no. twitter no, this cannot happen i'm sorry <laughs> you're going to have to free or i'll just tell you this it's out of this world. Mandalici says, life is a cup of coffee. It's all how you make it. Uh, Tam, Time Bandit 66 says, I'd love to see Gad here in Florida. Gad, uh, we'll, we'll talk afterwards. Um, and now let's see this. There's a $1 tip that says, you this, this has to be a satire. It says, how should Canada respond to the Ukraine invasion, vaccinated versus unvaccinated? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I can't bring this meme up. It's not. It's a stat. Uh, respondents who said they received three or more shots and they're all pro pro Ukraine, more sanctions, uh, seizing oligarch stuff. And everyone who's said they were unvaccinated do not support the, or are not necessarily as pro Ukraine as uh, the others are reflexively. Ethan, you want to come say hi? Are you, are you dressed? Okay. <laughs> He's not coming yet. Now I'm looking over here. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a, there's a dog turd on the ground. The kid, I got to tell you, Come say, gotta, hi, come say hi. I got to tell you, I've I've met your son. He's quite energetic. It is quite amazing that he's allowed you to do this thing for the past two hours. He's amazing. And I, I can't even pretend to complain. I want to take these off. You can still hear me? Yes, yes, perfect. Okay, I can't even pretend to complain. The kid has been amazing. We Hi, Ethan. Hi. We're still alive. Do, do, do you remember when we met in Florida? Yeah. Yeah, remember? We got... Uh, you got some sort of what was it called? The stick cake at Starbucks? Was that what is oh, it called? Oh, yeah, the cake pops. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the Starbucks. Right. Well, good yeah, to see you here. again. Oh, oh you okay. <laughs> okay, go get it. Um, so yeah, no, he's it's amazing. Like we drove uh, the better part of yesterday, the better part of the day, and I think tomorrow it's going to be 
the Blitz. How long are you staying in Montreal for? Are you? Can you uh, say the, the, a month? About a month and a half. This is the better part of the summer. Although oh, I, okay, great. We'll this, have a chance to hang out. That's wonderful. Yeah, for sure. But I got to do some some serious travel and uh, family stuff, so it's going to be a busy summer. Got you. Any yeah, chance? No, are you going to keep the hair long? Or is, is this become I, part of your identity? I, it's it's brand. It's I'm not. I'm, it's not just brand. It's my spirit. I I cannot. No, no. You're you're Samson. I used to be Samson, but now I've gone short. Well, the problem, the problem I, I get so nervous. Like when I brush it once or twice a week, and I, you know, I pull out knots and pull out hair. I was like, if I if I lose it, I, I've gotten too attached to it. No, but, can I tell you something? At at you're you're in your forties, right? Yeah, forty four. There is no way someone who's got hair this much hair, you're never gonna go bald. I mean, it might thin out a bit, but you're never gonna go bald. I wouldn't worry about yeah. that. I'm gonna. Oh, I think I'm I'm keeping it. Uh, look at look at look at where he got. It. He's in Spider Man and he throws it at the kissing scene. Oh, oh look at that! Look at that. Um, Gad. So let me see here. Go to the chat and just make sure that I got everything. Um, oh, hold on a second. Okay, so we got. Oops, forgot to make that a paid question. That was from Big Daddy Tech. Hold on, what was the question? Uh, MNL Hey says trust is important too. No schmeckling is also a trustworthy approach to a happy marriage. No question. And uh, Jeanette Victoria says, I did stand up. I, I did stand up. I did stand up against gay marriage. I was kicked out of my church for hate. My infant photography business was destroyed by fake you um, beside. Maybe that's business online. Was it quiet? And a vile homosexual sued me for defamation for things I did not say. I had no help from anyone. <sighs> that, well, that's, that's what I'm struggling with. with I, I know people um, view the trans movement analogously with with gay rights lesbian rights and i view them fundamentally differently because i always say like what 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 gay adults decide to do among themselves and even what trans adults decide to do among themselves is none of my business it's when it is um promoted pushed on children that it becomes the issue of everybody well it's so certainly the children element i completely agree with you but i would add another element i don't need to go along your journey in order to celebrate your unique personhood. You wish to identify as non-binary or two-spirited or whatever, that's great, and please go ahead and do that, and you should live free of bigotry. That doesn't mean that I should go on the celebratory joyride with you, right? So you understand what I mean? So when Jordan Peterson became famous for you know his defense against compelled speech, that was his position. I mean, I know Jordan very well. He's a good friend of mine. He's hardly someone who is bigoted or hateful. All he was saying is, you can't compel me to call you this or that or this, right? Like, I can't go on your personhood ride. I mean, he didn't say it in those words. And so to me, it's more than just, uh, you know, protecting children from all this nonsense. I don't need to sign up for your thing. And by the way, you don't get to remove my biological marker because I need to protect the 0.01% who may be non-binary. No, no, no. I am man, not cis man. My wife is woman, not cis woman, right? So I don't need to be so tolerant and eradicate my own personhood in order to uniquely celebrate yours. Now, now I'm shoving my kid's face away. <laughs> Gad, thank what you very much. Saying? What's he saying? I, I, I put the headphones back in because I thought this part might be boring. Oh, yes, 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 yes. But I'll tell, I'll tell him what you said. Okay, take it. Take it. Pull it. Pull it. Here we go. Gad. Thank you very much for doing this. Um, it's it amazing. amazing. I, I, you, there is going to be an audible, an audio version of the book, correct? There will be an audio version of the book that will come out around the same time of the release. Now, here's the only thing. 
it doesn't look, despite my best efforts, and I heard all of your requests, that I will be doing it. I, I, I went to bat many, many times. The audio publisher does not go for you know, auto narrations. So I lost the battle, but it's not because I didn't try. And I understand that my voice is uniquely intoxicating and sexy, but what can we do? <laughs> well, no, that's it. It's a, I, I'm trying to think of the books that I've read, John Ronson in his voice, Russell Brand was in his voice. Um, who was the other one? Oh, Michael Malice was in his voice. Malice's book was the only book, the only audible book I did not have to put on faster speed to listen to. But it's be, in Michael Malice's case, it's self-published. So he's got complete control over that decision. In my case, you see, what I need to do probably yeah. for the next book is put it in the contract that that decision could not be subcontracted to the audio publisher. Yeah. I have to give them. Oh. Okay. Uh, I had a guest on my show. She's a British woman, Louise Perry, who has a very, very beautiful, intoxicating feminine voice. And she told me, because I asked her, you have a beautiful voice. How did you convince? She said, well, I had it in the contract that it had to be me who read it. Yeah. So I think in the future, that's what I will put in. All right. Amazing. Uh, we got a couple more tips actually before we go. Denise and two says, I have never understood cheating. I agree with both of you. Absolutely. USA Net was, it's, it's a cheating is like lying. Once you cannot be trusted anymore, uh, there's nothing more important in life than being trusted and having people trust you. Yeah. Mr. Sad, why doesn't Jordan know who Robert E. Barnes is? Oh, yeah. Apparently, someone said that one of our subs said they, they exchanged with, with uh, Jordan Peterson and he said he didn't know who Robert Barnes was which made me nervous because that might have meant that he didn't know who I was because we hang out together so often, uh, Robert and I, but he's retweeted me, Jordan, so I think he knows who I am. Anyway, introduce him to Robert Barnes because uh, he should know who Robert Barnes is. I'll, I'll do my best. All right, guys, yeah, so we're going to hang out when we get to Montreal. It'll be tomorrow or the day after, and I'll uh, text you when I get there. Please reach out, and I look forward to seeing you in person. All right, thank you. Well, and, and guys, yeah, stick around. We'll say our proper goodbyes afterwards, but uh, everyone on Locals, thank you for being here, and I will see you all sooner than later.